grab a bowl of conch salad, take a sip of a gombe smash, and listen closely. Because the Bahamas is in all sunshine, this is the dark side of paradise. Each episode, you will hear the retelling of crime stories and folk tales from the Bahamas. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Our goal is to shed a light on stories from the Bahamas and to ensure they aren't forgotten or lost to history. We do our best to research each story and to honor the subjects we discuss. Episode 2, The Lost Boys of Freeport On May 9, 2003, Jake Grant, a 12-year-old boy who worked at the Winn-Dixie grocery store in Freeport, Grand Bahama, said goodbye to his family and left home for the afternoon. Like the other boys who worked at the grocery store, Jake would sometimes spend his modest salary on tips and video games at an arcade near where he worked. Known as bag boys, they are responsible for packing the groceries of the store's customers and carrying them out to their cars. These young boys, who worked long, hard hours after school and on weekends, did so not only to gain valuable work experience at a young age, but in the Bahamas, many of them did so to assist their struggling families financially. Usually, Jake would return home excited to recount the day to his family, but on this day in particular, he didn't return home and a nationwide search began even spanning beyond the borders of the Bahamas to the United States. One week later, on May 16, 2003, on the very same island of Grand Bahama, 12-year-old Mackinson Colas left home to run an errand for his mother. Mackinson packed groceries at the Winn-Dixie, just like Jake Grant. It was a popular job for schoolboys in the community. Like Jake, he too would spend a lot of time at the video game arcade near the grocery store, passing time with his friends. But Colas wasn't seen at the arcade that day and didn't return home that night. They contacted the police and filed a missing persons report. On May 27, 2003, another Winn-Dixie packing boy from Grand Bahama, 13-year-old D'Angelo McKenzie, left home for school and said goodbye to his family. They might have assumed he stayed late at the arcade or work, but when D'Angelo didn't return home that night, his family knew something was wrong. Worried, they contacted the police and filed a missing persons report. On July 29, 2003, 11-year-old Junior Remy left his home in Freeport, Grand Bahama. Coming home late as a packing boy with an arcade not far from where he worked must have not been uncommon in the community. But when Junior didn't show up for dinner that night, his family, scared for his safety, filed a missing persons report. Then on September 28, 2003, 14-year-old Desmond Roll finished his shift at the Winn-Dixie supermarket and was expected home by his family that evening. But Desmond never arrived, and his family, like Junior Remy's, were already frightened by the stories of the other missing boys in the area and filed a missing persons report. There were aerial searches by police, ground crews assisted by canine teams, and the community on foot spanned the length and width of the island, but there were no signs of the five boys who had gone missing. All of the young boys were from the same community. All of them worked as packing boys at the Winn-Dixie supermarket. Flyers were put up all over Grand Bahama and neighboring islands. Radio broadcasts implored the public to come forward with any information that might aid in their recovery, but all of these actions yielded no results. Not one clue, not one suspect, and the parents of the boys could do nothing. There were rumors of a satanic cult abducting children in the area, tall tales of human trafficking and organ theft, 
but these were all just speculation from a frightened community left reeling with no answers to their questions. Nothing like this had ever happened in the Bahamas before. Children do go missing, but this was very different. On the small island of Grand Bahama, five young boys between the ages of 11 and 14 disappeared without a trace. All five of their families reported them missing after they didn't return home for the evening. Their families begged for any information from the public but got nothing. The police had no leads and no bodies had been recovered. Everyone wanted to believe and have faith that the boys were indeed still alive. A reward of $25,000 was offered to the public for any information and eventually grew to $75,000, but still no one nationwide across the Bahamas heard or saw anything that helped the police. The public's outrage focused on their local police department and they wanted answers. They were scared and understandably so. Five children had vanished over the course of five months and no one had any idea what had happened to them. The local police force requested the assistance of the FBI, the Broward County Sheriff's Department, and Scotland Yard in the search of the four boys. Even Team Adam, a resource of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, with prominent member of TV personality John Walsh of America's Most Wanted, lent their services, even airing an episode about the five boys in the United States. But all of their combined efforts, you did nothing. For months, the public was left in a state of fear. Curfews were imposed on the community, and the parents of the missing boys were left without answers or leads of any kind for an excruciating length of time. The police were at a loss, and the investigators who traveled to the island to assist in the search returned to the United States dumbfounded. Then one day in October, the police made an announcement that they had made their first break in the case in over five months. A young 12-year-old boy named D'Angelo Dorval had been brought in for questioning. D'Angelo Dorval had a connection with the case. He was actually the best friend of Jake Grant, the very first boy to disappear. The two had lived in the same apartment complex at Tivoli Gardens for years. The public was horrified at the thought of a child having committed these crimes, and many dismissed even the thought of it as ludicrous. The police made another announcement that would shock the public. Three other young men were being detained but had yet to be charged in connection with the disappearances of the five boys. D'Angelo Dorval, Robert Don, and two other young men were being held for questioning. The parents of the missing boys were unsure of what to believe, and the families of the four boys being detained professed their children's innocence. The police had in their custody four young men who worked alongside the five missing boys at the Winn-Dixie supermarket. While in police custody, one of the young men confessed that he and some other boys, including Jake Grant, the first to disappear, were swimming at the Tivoli apartment complex where Grant and D'Angelo Dorval, the first detained over the disappearances, both lived. The boy told the police during his confession that Jake had gotten his hand stuck in the bottom of the pool and drowned. Another boy jumped in, pulling Jake out of the water, but he claimed water was pouring out of Jake's nose and he was unresponsive. Fearing he was dead and that they would be blamed for it, the boys who were there decided to take his body to the woods and left him there. D'Angelo Dorval was escorted by the police to the wooded area behind the apartment complex where he was meant to lead them to the spot where he said he and the others left Jake Grant either unconscious or dead, but he couldn't lead the police to his body. The wooded area next to the apartment complex was searched multiple times, but nothing but a few scraps of clothing was found that couldn't positively be identified as belonging to Jake Grant. Then, just as there was finally some traction in the case and developments were being made, the police hit a roadblock. 
A mother of one of the boys being detained for questioning claimed her son was being coerced by police into confessing to a crime that none of the boys had committed. James Ellis, Jake Grant's guardian, also found the initial police findings that D'Angelo Durval was responsible to be unlikely. Jake Grant's family had known D'Angelo Durval for years, and not only were the two boys neighbors, but they were best friends. Neither family could conceive of a scenario where D'Angelo could have been involved in Jake's disappearance. The public's trust in the police began to waver over speculation that they were forcing the boys in custody to admit to the crimes, and the accusations against the police muddied the facts of the case. And just when some assumed the accusations of the mother levied against the police would lead to the boys' release, it was announced that the boys were to be arraigned in connection to Jake Grant's disappearance at a Freeport juvenile court, sparking outrage from the detained boys' parents. On the day of their arraignment at the Freeport juvenile court, Cars lined both sides of the street as the families of the boys and general onlookers gathered outside. The proceeding took barely an hour, and Magistrate Franklin Williams charged the four boys in connection to the disappearance of Jake Grant. As the boys exited the courthouse in handcuffs, the crowd erupted. In that moment, like a sign from God, hoping to drench the fires of the crowd's outrage, rain began to fall, helping to disperse the group. The bus arrived at the Freeport International Airport, and the boys were loaded onto a plane bound for the capital of Nassau. Until their court date, they were remanded to the juvenile detention center. Such a strange twist in the case left the public wondering how to make sense of it all. Did the boys confess of their own free will, or were they being coerced? Out of the four boys being charged, three of them were Haitian nationals, a fact that would stir already lingering distrust of Haitians by Bahamian citizens and tensions across the community rose. And what was the public left to believe in regards to the disappearance of the other four boys? Would their cases have any new developments? The police announced that they were treating this case separately from all others. The four boys were being held over the disappearance of Jake Grant only, and not the other four boys who had disappeared. The other cases hadn't made a substantial development in months. Children were disappearing, and communities went into stricter lockdown than the ones already in place. Parents feared for the safety of their own children, and the local police force, without any further leads on the other four missing boys, couldn't guarantee the safety of the public. The detained boys all worked alongside the missing five at the Winn-Dixie in Freeport. They all socialized together at the video game arcade, and no one could have ever imagined that the only suspects in the cases of the missing boys would be children themselves. Then on one day in October, before the detained boys were to stand before a judge in a court of law, the local police in Freeport made a startling announcement that no one expected. A 43-year-old man of Grand Bahama named Cordell Farrington walked into the local central police station in Freeport and confessed to the murder of his 22-year-old lover, Jamal Robbins. Throughout their interrogation of Farrington, the police would learn of the shocking details surrounding his connection to the disappearances of the four boys. Farrington confessed to the kidnapping and murders of the four missing boys, excluding Jake Grant. He admitted to the officers that he was tired of killing, and that's what led him to turn himself over to the police for the crimes he had committed. Farrington had already confessed to the killing of his lover, Jamal Robbins, and to his involvement with the four missing boys, yet the four boys being detained in connection with the disappearance of Jake Grant were released. As per police reports, the boys were released after his confession due to a lack of evidence. The disturbing part of this story that really tugged on my heartstrings 
was that because of the confession of Cordell Farrington and the release of the four boys, the case of Jay Grant was left unsolved. The police never again looked into the four boys, two of whom had already confessed, although potentially coerced. Was their story circulating about Jay Grant's drowning even true? Was it a fabrication by the police to give the parents and the public a target other than the officers who came up with nothing after five months of investigating the cases of the missing boys? Who was responsible for Jay Grant as well, and not the boys in custody? If Farrington did have some connection to the case of Jay Grant, why confess about the four boys and not the fifth? Was someone else involved that the police had yet to investigate? What happened to Jay Grant over 15 years ago still remains a mystery. Could there be a possibility that one day Jay Grant could find his way back home? The trail of his case would go cold, and the police and the public's focus would be placed solely on Cordell Farrington. Since the arrest of Farrington, all the public knew was that he had confessed to the murders of Mackinson Colas, D'Angelo McKenzie, Junior Remy, Desmond Roll, and his lover Jamal Robbins. Farrington would speak candidly in court, sparing no detail that would shake the entire nation to its core. When Farrington confessed to the murders of his lover Jamal Robbins and the four boys, he led police to a secluded area at the Barbary Beach in Grand Bahama, where he had hidden and buried their corpses. He explained in court that he first left the bodies buried at the beach, then, at a later date, he retrieved their bones and kept them at his place of residence. A crime scene was sectioned off at Barbary Beach, and the police uncovered remains of some of the missing boys right where Farrington said they would be. Next, he led police to a spare room in a house he rented from a pregnant woman. There, they discovered the bones of the boys and Jamal Robbins. His roommate told police that she was never allowed in his room as he was very private about his personal space, and she never thought much of it. She was terrified to learn that he had been living in her home storing the remains of the people he'd murdered. Cordell Farrington was tried and given a sentence of life in prison. Then the trial of Cordell Farrington for the murder of the four missing boys began, and their families and the public listened to the gruesome details that led to their murders. Farrington calmly and seemingly without any remorse for the families present went into vivid and disturbing detail behind each abduction and murder. One family member eventually had to be removed from the courtroom when she had an outburst reacting to the grim retelling of her relative's last moments alive. You took my brother from me. You're supposed to die, she screamed, before being escorted out of the courtroom. Cordell Farrington explained what exactly happened to Mackinson Colas that dreadful day he disappeared on May 16, 2003. He described how he abducted Colas while walking home and offered him a ride, but instead took him back to his own home where he forced the young boy to remove his clothes and shower in front of him. He told the young boy to his face that he was going to kill him. And when Colas asked Farrington why, he responded because he had to and proceeded to hit the small boy in the head repeatedly with a wooden plank until he blacked out. Farrington then loaded the boy's body into the trunk of his car and drove him to Barbary Beach where he buried him and waited for weeks before retrieving his remains. Next, he detailed his meeting D'Angelo McKenzie, who disappeared on May 27, 2003. Finding the boy in a church parking lot, Farrington was able to convince him to accompany him in his car under the guise of retrieving sound equipment for the church. But Farrington instead took D'Angelo McKenzie to his home and raped him. Like Mackinson Colas, he told D'Angelo McKenzie he was going to kill him. According to Farrington, D'Angelo responded to hearing this by saying he just wanted to go to school and to receive a good education. He didn't want to die. 
D'Angelo's hands and feet were bound, and he was hitting the head with a wooden plank until he was unconscious. Farrington then drove to Barberry Beach and buried his body, and again returned some weeks later to retrieve his bones. Junior Remy disappeared on July 29, 2003. Farrington detailed how he found Junior in a parking lot and offered him a ride home, but instead took him to his. Once they arrived, he took Junior Remy into another room while his own son sat in another. He ordered the boy to take a shower, but he refused. He screamed and struggled, but to silence him, Farrington stabbed him in the neck with a knife and Junior fell over silent, covered in blood on the bathroom floor. He then loaded the boy's body into the back of his car and once again drove to Barberry Beach, where he buried him. On September 28, 2003, Desmond Roll went missing. Farrington had picked him up at a park and gained the boy's trust by lying to him about knowing his family. Farrington drove him to a secluded area on the island where he handcuffed and raped Desmond Roll in the back of his car. Farrington detailed how he then slit the boy's throat with a knife and committed fellatio on his corpse. He then used the knife to open the boy's chest and removed his heart. Farrington also used the knife to cut off the arms and legs of Desmond Roll claiming he had become bored by his previous methods of killing and that he was interested in finding a new way to kill his victims. During the trial, Farrington's lawyers tried to portray him as mentally unstable, having in the past been a patient of Sandalin's Rehabilitation Center in the Bahamas for drug and mental health issues. Farrington had worked in a warehouse as a model employee. He was a good father and dabbled as an artist. In his spare time, even entering his paintings of young boys crying for art exhibits in Grand Bahama. Although he had suffered from drug abuse and mental health issues in the past, his outward appearance and behavior reflected a normal man, and everyone interviewed in his community characterized him as a nice or kind man who was hardworking and kept to himself. No one had any suspicions that he had been responsible for the disappearances that tore a small community apart and left an entire nation in fear for months. When asked by the senior justice, Stephen Isaacs, if he had anything to say to the court or to the families of the victims, Farrington broke down and began to cry. He said that he was sorry for what he had done and that he didn't fully understand why he did it, but he did ask for forgiveness from the family members. Justice Isaacs made special note of the substantial loss of life and missed opportunities for the young boys and called the actions of Farrington horrific and not of someone who should be remitted into society. He sentenced Farrington to a life sentence in prison for each of the young boys, totaling four, and a separate life sentence for Jamal Robbins, bringing the total to five. The case had concluded, and a combined funeral was held for the four boys that died at the hands of Farrington. The families could all grieve as one, as they had all lived this nightmare together for months, sharing the grief and sorrow of losing a child. Their children's remains were finally put to rest, but Jake Grant's family would never see justice for their child. His case stalled after Cardell Farrington was convicted, and the four boys arrested in connection to Jake Grant's case had been released from the detention center, cleared of any wrongdoing in relation to his disappearance. Cordell Farrington is considered to be one of, if not the most disturbed and horrific serial killer in the history of the Bahamas, and the effects he left on a country and the families affected are felt to this day. His actions destroyed lives and deprived the world of young men that never got their chance. Years later after his conviction, he tried and failed to appeal the sentencing for the murder of Jamal Robbins and is still remanded at the Fox Hill Prison in Nassau.
In all honesty, this story was very difficult to prepare. The murders of children was not a story that I particularly wanted to focus on, but it's a story that people in or outside of the Bahamas should be aware of because the lives of Jake Grant, Mackinson Colas, Junior Remy, D'Angelo McKenzie, Desmond Roll were cut short, and they deserve to be remembered and their stories told. Jake Grant has still never been found. You can find his picture on our website at www.thedarksideofparadise.com. If anyone has any information that could lead to his whereabouts, please contact the Bahamas Police Department. Let their story serve as a reminder to cherish your children and to keep them safe. And tune in every two weeks for another Bahamian crime story or folktale. And remember, it's not always sunny in the Bahamas. I'm your host, Stephen Fountain, and thanks for listening.